Benjamin Applebaum had been writing about economics with considerable success for more than a decade when Donald Trump was elected president in November 2016. The shocking victory jolted Applebaum into a humbling realization. It was really a moment, I think, when I, I felt like I didn't sufficiently understand what had gone wrong in our economy and why, uh, and that a lot of people probably didn't know that story either. And I wanted to go back and understand what had happened uh, and to tell that story. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. After Trump's election in 2016, Applebaum knew he had to go back to the drawing board and reconnect the dots in his understanding and the public's understanding of the macroeconomic factors that got Trump elected president. What resulted is his terrific book, The Economist's Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. Joining me now to share what he discovered and the factors that could swing the 2020 presidential race is Benjamin Applebaum. He's the lead writer on business and economics for the New York Times editorial board. Before joining the editorial board, Applebaum was a Washington correspondent for the Times, covering economic policy in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. Applebaum also worked for the Charlotte Observer, where his reporting on the subprime lending crisis won a George Polk Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Binya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Were you one of those geeky kids, a whiz at a math and head buried in books? Where did you grow up and what were you like? <laughs> <laughs> I grew up outside of Boston and yeah, my father is a professor, my mother is a historian. It was very much a family where you know books were very important. Uh, there was a shelf in my living room where my parents books were arrayed and uh you know shelves throughout the house with other people's books and so yeah i grew up in a very uh intellectual environment an environment where there was a real emphasis on ideas and curiosity and debate and so i mean it was a pretty good childhood how did you wind up writing about economics i fell in love with journalism during college i worked for the college paper and came out of college feeling like i wanted to to be a journalist uh but initially i was uh you know sort of a general purpose journalist i wrote about all sorts of different topics, uh, local government, crime, religion. Uh, and I happened to be working in Charlotte, North Carolina, which was a big banking center at the time. It still is. Uh, and the managing editor called me into his office and told me the paper needed a new banking reporter. I told him that sounded kind of boring. And he told me I was the new banking reporter. So <laughs> that's how it began. And, and then uh, how did you end up writing this book? Uh, you know, I, as you said in the introduction, I really, when the 2016 election results came in and it was clear that Donald Trump uh, had won, it was really a moment, I think, when I, I felt like I didn't sufficiently understand what had gone wrong in our economy and why, uh, and that a lot of people probably didn't know that story either. And I wanted to go back and understand what had happened uh, and to tell that story. And I think, you know, I have a a belief that if we understand how we got somewhere, it's easier to understand how we move forward. So why is your book called The Economist's Hour? So the, the basic premise of the book is that there was a revolution in economic policymaking that began in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, where economists became increasingly influential in setting the course of government policy, and in particular in advocating for the government to uh, step back from active management of economic conditions and to rely to a much greater extent on the market uh, to allocate resources and determine the course of growth. 
uh, and the 40-year period when those ideas are, are really uh, dominant runs from roughly 1969 to 2000 to date uh, is the period that I refer to as the economist's hour. And why do you call them false prophets? I think that they were wrong. I think that at the beginning of this period, they sold their ideas uh, by, by representing that if we embraced this approach to public policy, uh, the economy would grow more quickly, uh, all boats would be lifted up, prosperity would, would be broad and well distributed, uh, and even that democracy would benefit, that the strains on our democracy uh, would be reduced because uh, we would be making we would be forced to make fewer decisions through the process of democracy. We would be able to rely on markets to make a lot more decisions, and we would have to agree about less. When you go to a market, everybody can order something different for dinner. Everybody can decide what kind of house they want. Everyone can decide what kind of job they want. And the set of things that we would need to decide democratically would be smaller. And I think in all three of those respects, uh, this change in policymaking failed to deliver. Growth has slowed. Inequality has increased. Uh, and our democracy is in worse shape than ever. Now, economists weren't always at the table. They weren't always kind of these household names and many celebrities that they are today, were they? That's right. I, I begin my book, actually, with the story of a, a young economist named, well, a young economist sitting in the in the basement of the Federal Reserve in New York uh, in the 1950s. He's essentially a human calculator. He's a very low-level employee, and he's really frustrated. He goes home one night and says to his wife, I don't think there's a future for an economist here at the Federal Reserve. I need to find another line of work. Uh, well, that economist's name was Paul Volcker. Uh, by the late 1970s, he's running the Federal Reserve. Today, the Federal Reserve is the nation's largest employer of, of economists. Uh, and sort of the arc of Volcker's life really captures the arc of this economist's hour. Uh, when he worked at the Fed in the 1950s, none of the Fed's leadership were economists. Uh, today, uh, they dominate. And even presidents didn't have a very high view of economists as a whole. They didn't, no. I, they were extremely suspicious of economists and economic advice. Uh, really, it's not until the 1960s that presidents begin to lean heavily on the advice of economists uh, in the areas of economic policymaking and regulation. Uh, but it takes a long time for economists to win their confidence, and, and then that's when this revolution begins. What change to make that happen? There are a couple of big changes. One is that economics grows up as a discipline. So when the Great Depression begins, uh, the federal government doesn't even know how large the American economy is. They hire uh, an economist named Simon Kuznets to, to answer that question. And he goes out and creates what we now know as GDP, the measurement of the size of the economy. And he tells Congress, listen, the, the economy used to be this big, and now it's quite a bit smaller. And once you can measure it, then you can start thinking about how to manage it. So in much the same way that the first pictures from space of the planet Earth really transformed the debate around environmentalism because the Earth suddenly seemed tangible as an entity, so too once you could measure the American economy, it became possible to talk about it as an entity and economists began to propose ideas for managing the economy. And so from the 40s onwards, you get these growing and increasingly important debates about how to manage the economy. A second big factor is that the economy is breaking down. So there's a period of growth after World War II of broad prosperity, and by the late 1960s, it's really beginning to come to an end. And into the 1970s, it really feels like whatever we're doing is not working. We need to try something different. Uh, and economists are ready with an alternative. They have a clear set of ideas uh, that policymakers can take and implement 
that they represent will solve these problems. And technology played a role too, computing power and of course the increase in the amount of data available. Absolutely. I think actually the influence of economists runs a little bit ahead of the technology. What happens is that economists initially are proposing big theories about the economy, often without the data to back those theories up. Uh, and one thing that happens over time is that as computing power increases, as we collect more and more data, uh, we're able to refine our understanding of economics and to improve uh, the theories and the policies. Uh, and, and so some of what initially is adopted as wisdom turns out to be wrong and uh, economics, I think, in some respects, has been improved over time by that data revolution. For those of us that are lay people, I think it's important to describe this broad framework, this tug of war between the two primary schools of thought that shaped our global economy, fiscal policy versus monetary policy, and kind of the two major economists who are behind those. Could you describe that briefly? Absolutely. So once you are talking about how you manage the economy, which basically means how you uh, make uh, economic growth as fast as possible, and how you prevent or at least limit recessions. Uh, John Maynard Keynes is, is the British economist who really is the first to come to public prominence for his ideas about how you do this. Uh, and Keynes really emphasizes the importance of government spending as a regulator of economic activity. Uh, that if the economy isn't growing quickly enough uh, or is actually contracting during a recession or during the Great Depression, a big part of the answer is for government to spend more money, which is what we call fiscal policy. Uh, or to cut taxes, which is another aspect of fiscal policy, but basically to either leave more money in people's pockets or to put more money into people's pockets, that's really the core of his prescription for managing economic conditions. Uh, and his great rival, although the two of them never met and barely interacted, was Milton Friedman, uh, an American economist who uh, advocated uh, insistently and, and successfully uh, for policymakers to stop listening to Keynes, uh, on the grounds that this type of fiscal policy was was really counterproductive, and instead to focus on monetary policy, on on regulating the the supply of money, uh, Friedman argued that basically what mattered was how much money was out there. That the Great Depression had essentially been caused by the failure of the Federal Reserve to make sure that the economy had enough money in it, uh, and that the government's really primary and almost sole role in managing economic conditions was just to make sure that there was enough money and not to try to determine you know, where to spend it or who to give it to or who to take it from, but just to stand back and focus on that big picture. And the big difference is inflation, right? How, what were the views on inflation and how, whether you keep inflation down or whether you, you allow inflation to go up, but you, in the, but you want to make sure that unemployment stays down? So Friedman, Friedman's philosophy basically reduced to the idea that if you kept inflation slow and steady, you had done your job and everything else would take care of itself. Uh, Keynes did not feel that that was sufficient. He thought that the government had to do a broader set of things in order to maintain a healthy economy. Uh, and, and even uh, within, you know, on the question of inflation, some of Keynes's disciples argued uh, and were influential for a long time in arguing that you needed to consider the balance between low inflation and unemployment. That if you focus too much on driving down inflation, uh, it would come at the expense of employment uh, and that workers would be hurt by this overriding focus on low inflation. Um, and that debate, you know, sort of plays out over the second half of the 20th century. And as these economists grew in stature, so did the power of the Federal Reserve. Is that right? 
Friedman in particular is basically arguing that the Federal Reserve should be the institution that manages macroeconomic policy that is responsible for the health of the economy. Uh, and so he wants to elevate it, its importance and to diminish the importance of the rest of the federal government. And as his ideas take hold and as he essentially prevails in this debate, that is what we see happen, is that the Federal Reserve comes to be thought of as the most important uh, economic policymaking body. Uh, because its decisions about inflation and about interest rates are understood to be you know, the most consequential factors in, in the health of the economy. And for people who don't understand what the Federal Reserve does, what does the Federal Reserve do? What is its role? Yeah, the Federal Reserve is basically the institution that's responsible for regulating the money supply, or if you want to think about it the other way, for regulating the price of money, uh, for setting interest rates that determine how much money is moving through the economy, how easy it is to borrow, uh, and and by adjusting those levers, by basically adding water to the bathtub or draining water from the bathtub, uh, it can it can influence the level of economic activity. We're going to talk about President Donald Trump later, but I just want to mention him here in the context of the Federal Reserve because there there has been a lot of uh, reporting on this battle between the Federal Reserve and President Trump over interest rates. Can you put this in this context of this these two philosophies and where Trump wants to go and where the Federal Reserve wants to go? So President Trump has tried by the means at his disposal to goose economic growth. He has pumped money into the economy by increasing government spending, as Keynes suggested that he could. Uh, he has also essentially seized on Friedman's advice and sought to drive down interest rates and to hold down interest rates in order to, to increase economic growth. Uh, the president doesn't have a particular economic philosophy. He's just essentially grabbing at all the available levers and trying to make the economy grow as fast as possible. Uh, in the short term, uh, he's had some success, although he's undercut himself in other ways. Uh, in the long term, a lot of economists think that there will be consequences. But uh, it's actually an interesting example of the way that economists' ideas can be seized upon by politicians, ripped out of their original context, and put to use in ways that no economist would ever advise. <laughs> and their data used in different ways and skewed in many ways, depending sure, yeah. on what, what the outcome needs to be. Um, you correlate this rise of liberal democracy with the rise of fiscal policy that Keynes was advocating and the rise of conservative doctrine and the evolution of, of global ethno-nationalism with the rise of Friedman's monetary theory. How, did, how do you correlate that? Yeah, I think that um, one reason that governments began to take responsibility for economic conditions uh, is that governments uh, began to be politically responsible to a broader electorate. So uh, in the aftermath of World War II, the franchise, literally the share of the population that is participating in the election of political leaders, expands dramatically uh, across the democratic world. Uh, and these leaders are suddenly responsible to voters who are members of the working class, uh, which really hadn't been true before in many of these countries. Um, and that much broader constituency uh, is demanding that the government take responsibility for their welfare uh, and that it seek to raise living standards at the bottom and to avoid unemployment uh, and, and to maintain a strong safety net for people who lose their jobs or who are not making enough to take care of themselves. Uh, and so there's a real uh, urgency to this political project of taking care of the broad population, which is only enhanced by this competition with communism, by the Cold War. Because you can see in this period, Western political readers really saying explicitly, basically, we need to show that capitalism is 
is better for the working class than communism. We need to demonstrate that people are benefiting from this. Uh, and what happens basically is that the proponents of this philosophy overreach. And by the late 1960s and early 1970s, uh, this set of ideas uh, has been stretched past the breaking point. I, I tell the story in the book of uh, an economist uh, who became the Secretary of Commerce uh, in the Carter administration. She was a professor of economics at Duke University, became the Secretary of Commerce in the, in the Carter administration. She resigned from the administration because she was uh, at a loss about how to help the economy. And, and then she resigned from Duke because she said she didn't know what to teach her students about economics anymore. That's a remarkable moment. By the late <laughs> 1970s, you basically have this loss of faith in these ideas, uh, and that creates an opportunity for a new approach. And Milton Friedman and, and his allies step into the void, and what they basically say is, listen, trying isn't always helpful. You, you think that because you want to help people, you can just go do it. No, the government needs to recognize its own limitations. It needs to stand back from these problems, get out of the way, and let the market help people. Uh, and that philosophy uh, takes hold in turn across the Western world and really requires people to sort of accept that their direct agency is not is not that helpful and indeed to shelter markets from democratic uh, demands, to ensure that property rights are protected, to limit taxation of the wealthy, to reduce the availability of public resources for funding a safety net. Uh, these are all, in a sense, anti-democratic impulses. Friedman argued that the results would be better for the majority of people, uh, but the mechanism was no longer direct democracy. Indeed, it was, in many respects, anti-democratic. And so you get this turn toward this project of helping people by allowing rich people to do what they want and hoping that the benefits would trickle down. So one of the most interesting parts of the book for me was understanding how a lot of these big um, uh, programs, you know, ending the draft, for instance, Medicare and Medicaid, um, antitrust uh, and airline deregulation, the end of unionization, all of that, how that kind of fell in within this framework. And I was thinking maybe you could talk briefly about the different presidents and who was responsible for what, starting with, I guess, FDR, because that's under him that Keynes first appealed to him and said, you need to spend money. Yeah, FDR actually didn't listen that much to Keynes, but uh, so you get a series of presidents, you know, beginning with FDR, who are taking responsibility for this project of, you know, managing the economy and and investing public resources in the public welfare. And that continues uh, from Roosevelt through Truman, uh, Eisenhower, uh, Kennedy, and Johnson, who actually, you know, probably does this to a greater extent than anyone uh, after FDR. So you get the, the New Deal under uh, FDR, and then what's called the Great Society under Johnson, these major expansions of, of the social safety net uh, of the public welfare state, uh, and this effort to help people by, by giving them uh, government help. And then the turn begins under Nixon. Uh, Nixon's a complicated figure. He still is in many ways uh, the leader of this welfare state. He believes in it in important respects. But he also begins to embrace the ideas of economists who are arguing for this turn toward markets. And that accelerates through the 1970s under Presidents Ford and Carter. Uh, and really, by the time Reagan arrives, Reagan is often seen as, as the revolutionary figure. But the truth is that in almost every respect, the turn toward markets is already well underway when Reagan arrives. His uh, role is to become the public face of that turn. 
and in many ways to to accelerate it and and to make it permanent. Um, and so it is under you know uh, Reagan that that tax cuts really you know go into overdrive, uh, and and um, through the eighties the government is is really in this position of saying I mean as Reagan famously says you know the government is not your friend it's not going to help you uh, we need to help ourselves this whole philosophy really takes hold in American policy. And then what happens with uh, Bush and uh, Obama and Clinton, Clinton, Obama and, and Trump? So one of the important themes of my book is that it is wrong to think of this turn toward markets as a purely conservative phenomenon. This is not the story of Republicans or right-wing economists somehow co-opting the political process and imposing their own will. Uh, it is very importantly the story of Democrats and left-wing economists and liberals uh, accepting uh, Milton Friedman's views on many of these issues uh, and beginning to embrace you know, the importance of markets, of deregulation, of lower tax rates, of across this whole host of policy issues. And so you really see during the Clinton years in particular, uh, the things that Reagan had done on a partisan basis become bipartisan. Uh, they're embraced by the Democratic Party uh, you know, and and uh, you know, you get a turn in in taxation and in trade policy and in regulatory policy in all of these areas. You get essentially a, a consensus position that has been endorsed by at least the center of both political parties about the way that we should manage the economy. And really, you know, by the turn of the century, it it has become awfully difficult to. I mean, there is a difference between the Republican and the Democratic Party on economic issues, but it's not a big one. Uh, their bigger differences are social, uh, and you can see it in the rhetoric of the time, which is very much about sort of culture war issues, uh, because the economic issues uh, have been, if not completely resolved, then substantially resolved around this mainstream consensus. Uh, and then, of course, the final chapter here is is the crisis of 2000, it begins in 2007, which really collapses this consensus, and Obama is the first post-crisis president, and, and he begins the process of wrestling with where we go from here. So, and, and, and were his decisions also significant in that regard in terms of cementing the, the Friedman uh, hold on our, our thinking? No, I, I really think that 2008 is a turning point in this story. It really marks the end of the economist's hour, this period in which there was a consensus about you know, the primacy of markets and the government should get out of the way. It really ends in 2008. It's just impossible uh, in the aftermath of that crisis for serious people to look at the financial system and, and maintain that it shouldn't be tightly regulated by the government or, uh, you know, to ignore the need for Keynesian stimulus. Uh, and, and so in the aftermath, you basically have a period much like the 1970s or the 1930s, where it's clear that the way we were doing things is no longer working. And the question is, how, how should we do things instead? And I think we're very much in the throes of that debate even now, a decade later, we're still trying to figure out what comes next and where do we go from here. One of the biggest consequences of this shift uh, from Keynes to Friedman, from fiscal to monetary policy is that the rich definitely got richer and this consolidation of power, this distribution of poverty and uh, you know, uh, this notion that economists and the Federal Reserve should work on reducing inflation, even at the expense of uh, people becoming unemployed. And there was almost this cold-blooded view towards that, just from some of the anecdotes you said, that inequality is good because that's a mark of successful capitalism. So I think the broad uh, 
framework here is that economists argued that there was fundamentally a trade-off between the efficiency of economic activity and equality. So if you wanted the economy to grow as fast as possible, inequality was going to be an inevitable consequence. And if you wanted to reduce inequality, you needed to accept slower growth. And this uh, purported dichotomy really informs the way that we make policy in three broad areas. The first is what you've been talking about, which is macroeconomic policy and the trade-off between inflation and unemployment. And there, policymakers really prioritize low inflation uh, in, in, in the hope of spurring growth by making it cheap to borrow, basically. Uh, the second area is regulation. The government really aggressively pursues the deregulation of economic activity, again, with an emphasis on uh, increasing economic growth and with very little regard for distribution. And the final area is, is distribution itself. The government really steps back from its role in trying to you know, uh, strengthen the social safety net uh, or get, to guarantee opportunity to individuals or to invest in you know, education or in research to build the future. Uh, government becomes a bad word. Uh, the loss of faith in government is profound and consequential. And in all three of those areas, economists are advocating a set of alternative policies that have the consequence of, of increasing economic inequality. And you had some amazing statistics, particularly one comparing the year your father was born and the, and the year you were born, for instance. Yeah, my father was born in 1951. And among men born in that year, uh, fully three quarters of them earned more than their fathers uh, in their prime. Uh, I was born in 1978. And for my cohort, it's, it's around half of my cohort who will uh, be in a position who will who are now in their primes earning more than their fathers. So and and for my children, it's likely to be less. So there's been this deterioration. The American dream that each generation progresses beyond its parents uh, is not just in danger; it has actually ended. <laughs> uh, we are actually less mobile as a society than many other developed democracies. Europe, which is still in the mind of many Americans, uh, an ossified place where people are consigned to the castes of their ancestors, uh, is now a more mobile society than the United States, a place where people are more likely to be able to rise up during the course of their own lifetimes. You had another interesting statistic on the 1978 median income for full-time employees versus 2017. We're in this period of long-term stagnation. Uh, if you are a member of sort of the working or middle class, whatever you want to call the great majority of Americans, uh, you have not seen a significant improvement uh, in your income during your lifetime. Uh, even if you were born, you know, since, since the late 1970s, basically, uh, we've been in a holding pattern. Uh, and I think for the, the number you gave was median income in 78 was 54,392. In 2017, it was 52,146. Mm -hmm. And the third statistic is on taxation, the 2011 tops tax earners paid an average of 33.2% in taxes, and the bottom 90 paid an average of 26% in taxes. And the really important thing about that figure is that the, the top, uh, the, those who earn the most, used to pay more than half of their income in taxes. And now they pay only 33% of their income in taxes. And meanwhile, the amount, the share of income that, that uh, the middle of the distribution pays has actually increased slightly. It's in the same ballpark, but the huge change uh, is that we are leaving much more of the wealth held by the wealthiest Americans in their hands. The premise was that they would use it in ways that would benefit everyone. The reality is that they haven't. Um, and this is one of the big areas in which this shift in economic policy uh, has not delivered on its premises. 
One great story that sums it up is your story of Galesburg, Illinois, where Ronald Reagan spent, I guess, some of his childhood. Fascinating town. Yeah, Galesburg, Illinois is an old factory town in the middle of the flat farmland of Illinois. Uh, Illinois is uh, the second flattest state after Florida, which I always find amazing. Uh, and in the middle of that expanse of farmland, there is the occasional factory town. Galesburg was one of those factory towns. Uh, and there was a factory there where they made uh, refrigerators for years and years and years. Ronald Reagan, as you say, lived there as a young man. His first grade uh, report card is on display in the local museum. <laughs> uh, and when Reagan was there, it was a prosperous place, a place that people could grow up and go on to be president of the United States. And today, Galesburg is a train wreck. It's a place where the jobs have gone away. Uh, the people uh, lack opportunity to the extent that they're employed. The jobs are, are limiting. Uh, it, it seems wildly implausible that a, a young kid uh, in first grade in Galesburg today would have the opportunity to grow up to be president. You also paint a sobering picture of the U.S. economy in coming decades, moving from the manufacturing heyday to a place where uh, aging, caring for aging baby boomers is going to be kind of a predominant form of employment. I don't think it needs to be sobering. So it, it is clear that that the primary, you know, the, the, the idea that sort of the iconic American worker a half century ago was a guy making cars in Detroit. Uh, and today it is probably, you know, a Hispanic woman caring for that guy who is now retired somewhere in Arizona. That shift is real. Uh, does it need to be grim? No, we just need to decide uh, to treat our service workers better. We need to make sure that that is a respected form of employment in which a person can earn a living wage and take care of their family uh, and have comfort in retirement. We're not doing that right now. The grim thing is that we have not, that the long struggle to improve uh, the lives of factory workers, which you know, is the story of much of the first half of the 20th century and is ultimately a story of, of great triumph, uh, has not transferred to these new workplaces. And so the things that uh, those car workers enjoyed, the, the health care benefits, the vacation days, the sick days, the retirement plans, uh, those things do not exist for this new generation of workers. And that is the problem. And it, it is uh, a tragic problem. Your book also takes aim at sort of the some of the governmental hypocrisy uh, in in sort of its view towards you know uh, dis, you know breaking up unions, but on the other hand, you say they're not really anti real estate associations that charge six percent closing fee for consumers, for instance. I mean, you there are some other examples of that, particularly in the two thousand and eight financial crisis, and bringing those to task. You know, the biggest uh, culprits of the of the crisis. There's really been a systematic disregard for the distribution of opportunity, for the distribution of wealth. And you see it in things like the way that the government uh, treats lower income families versus the way that it treats the elites. And the financial crisis really crystallized a lot of this because we saw the Obama administration working tirelessly to save the financial industry without any observable effort to hold financial titans accountable for their bad behavior, while at the same time refusing to bail out homeowners, refusing to help people who would become trapped under mountains of debt that they could not afford. Uh, people say, well, the homeowners did it to themselves. Sure, but the bankers did it to themselves too. We all messed up. And then the government went in and saved the rich people and left the poor people to suffer. I think for a lot of people that still crystallizes what has gone wrong 
uh, with our policymaking establishment. And one example you gave is of SunTrust Bank. It's very vivid. I mean, it's an amazing story. The government finally got around to inquiring into why it was that SunTrust was not complying with federal requirements to help homeowners uh, who had sought relief through one of the very few government programs that was ever created to help. Uh, and they found that the, the weight of the applications that SunTrust had not read and processed, had they're all stuffed into the same storage closet, and the floor had buckled under the weight of all of the people seeking help who SunTrust could not be bothered to help. And for its sins, SunTrust paid a small fine and then nothing happened. Let's talk about the current administration and, and President Trump. Um, how would you describe his grasp of economic policy and, and what the administration's policy is and, and the strength of his advisors to lead this country in the next few years? It's yeah. fascinating. I mean, President Trump is as hostile to expert advice as any president in modern times, more than any president in modern times. He has, he has a contempt for not just for economists, but really for expertise, uh, an indifference at best to math, uh, he has very strong ideas in some areas uh, and and sort of uh, an instinct for what he thinks is right in others, but he makes policy without regard to any theory of economics uh, beyond in the area of trade where he has this basic sense that trade is a competition between nations and that one nation is winning and one nation is losing and, and that he needs to make sure that America is winning at the expense of, of its foreign competitors. And, and what about uh, in terms of his economic advisors? So a reflection of the fact, I mean, he does not hold experts in high regard and he doesn't really employ any experts. Uh, there are a few credentialed economists in his administration, but they are uh, figures held in, in there are they're outliers in the profession. They're people who are not held in high regard by other economists. And who have very odd views about how the economy works. Peter Navarro, his main trade advisor, is an excellent example of this. Uh, he, you know, has he shares the president's view that trade is a competition, whereas most economists think that trade is, in general, mutually beneficial to participating nations. So the president has found people who reinforce his biases uh, and are willing to uh, work in the service of the goals that he has established. Uh, it's not a great way to run an administration. There are people who would argue that the president has done a good job with the economy, which seems to be giving him, you know, it's running strong and it seems to be giving him a serious lift into the election season. His popularity ratings are up. Uh, one ABC headline recently said economic prosperity boosts Trump in election poll counterweight to his popularity. And it seems that the American public is actually giving him credit for the, the economic prosperity. I think there's a really strong analogy between President Trump's previous life as a businessman and his current life as a politician. He inherited a lot of money, uh, and there's a wonderful analysis showing that if he had put it all into the stock market, he would have ended up significantly wealthier than he did by playing at real estate development and casinos for a couple of decades. So in other words, he took a good hand and played it badly. And the same thing is true of his administration. He inherited a very a growing economy, a good situation. Uh, the economy has continued to grow, uh, and he is indeed getting credit for it from voters. It's you know while less than fifty percent of American voters say that they're happy with him, one can only imagine what those numbers would be if the economy was doing badly. And yet, the specific decisions that Donald Trump has made about the economy. Uh, have been bad. You know, he really has, he's created these trade wars that are weighing on economic growth, considerable uncertainty. He's, you know, uh, 
uh, he's gave out this huge tax cut that is going to have long-term detrimental consequences for the economy. Uh, he has uh, tried really hard to make it easier to pollute, to make it easier to take advantage of workers, to make it easier, a uh, sweeping deregulation campaign. Um, and so I, I don't think that uh, credit for the continued economic growth uh, really uh, belongs to him. I think that he has been very lucky to uh, be able to be president during a period when the economy already was growing. Let's talk about a couple of the Democratic candidates. We've talked about this economic framework. Where do people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and others fit into that framework? And, and why are they so popular? Is it this need, people believe there's now this need again for the safety net to, you know, with universal health care and all of these things? It's really fascinating. There's a real diversity among the Democratic candidates. You've got, you know, someone like Pete Buttigieg, who really seems to be arguing that our basic economic policy framework is 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 good and in need of some thinking and, and tweaking. Uh, and then you've got Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who are arguing for really major structural reforms. Uh, there, I think there is a difference between the two of them. I think Warren is more inclined to rewrite the rules of our economy, of our markets, while Sanders is more inclined to you know, replace markets in some areas. Uh, but if fundamentally, both of them are really emphasizing that things are broken and that we need big changes. That's popular with a portion of the Democratic electorate. No one has emerged as a clear front runner precisely because voters are of two minds, at least, about what needs to be done. Uh, but it's clear, just as you know, Donald Trump's candidacy reflected essentially a rejection of standard Republican economic orthodoxy, the Democratic Party is currently debating whether to get rid of its own orthodoxy as well. Now, you say in the book that kind of the ideal framework is a strong safety net combined with a strong market economy. Is there any candidate who comes closest to that ideal uh, model? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I do think that that's what we need. And, and you know, I recently participated in the New York Times editorial board recently endorsed uh, Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar as uh, the best, uh, the, the Democratic candidates who we think voters should be choosing between the two of them. And I think both of them in different ways uh, embody versions of, of that goal. They both want to strengthen the social safety net. Uh, they both want to rewrite the rules of the market. Warren uh, wants to do a lot more in both of those areas. And I think, you know, that while I agree with many of her ideas, I think her challenge is to convince voters uh, to participate, to embrace that project. Uh, Klobuchar has more modest goals, uh, but seems to be more in line with a broader share of the population. So the question of which of them emerges, I think, is a really interesting one. But I think a lot of uh, Democratic candidates, and even, frankly, in his own way, Donald Trump, accept the premise that we need to be doing two things as a society, one of which is you know, providing more help to people, and the other is figuring out different rules for our markets. Uh, it's in the details that, that you get the debates. But the sense that it's broken and it needs to be fixed, I think, is at this point pretty prevalent. Even if he wins, will part of his constituency, I think it's safe to say the alienated males who've lost jobs and who are part of his core constituency, will they ever recover? Will they get what they want, I guess? I, I don't think Donald Trump is going to give them what they want. I don't think his policies show any prospect of delivery. I think he's been quite good at identifying real economic problems uh, and unsuccessful in proposing policies that are likely to fix those problems. So 
I, I understand why people feel aggrieved and why they wanted to embrace a new approach, but I, I think that those voters are going to remain frustrated if, if they are hoping that he is going to solve those problems. I don't see any evidence that he is going to do so. You say that the measure of a society is the quality of life at the bottom of the pyramid rather than the quality of life at the top of the pyramid, and that we need a market seasoned with mercy uh, rather than, you know, in your words, a kind of this willful indifference to the distribution of poverty over the last half century. Is that ever likely to happen in the next decade or two? I hope so. I mean, I think the, the challenge is to convince Americans that this is true and that we need to change the rules. That, that for example, one of the things we've learned a lot about uh, in recent years uh, from really compelling research is uh, how important it is, the situation at the beginning of a child's life, uh, the home environment, their exposure to new words, how you know how quickly they get into a strong educational context, how much environmental pollution there is in the air and in the in the air they breathe and the water they drink. You know, if we want to make sure that people have opportunity, not just for themselves, but so they can become contributing members of society and strengthen all of our opportunities and all of our welfare, we need to do a much better job of putting public the focus of public investment on the early years of childhood. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C., where public education begins at the age of three. It's been an enormously successful and important program. Universal pre-kindergarten, I think, should be an absolute national priority. Uh, the fact that there are still lead pipes in this country is outrageous. Uh, the, the fact that your race and uh, ethnicity and socioeconomic status determine how likely you are to give birth to a healthy child is outrageous. The fact that life expectancy is in decline for lower income Americans is outrageous. We need to convince people not just that these are problems, but that we can solve them and that if we do, we will all be better off. Uh, and I am optimistic, though by no means confident, that we can build a consensus around some of these issues. So if you were to sum up the role of government today, I mean, is it truly government representative of the people, by the people, and for the people? And if not, what is it? You know, I mean, I suppose the best thing that can be said of the American government is that I don't know of a better system, but I think we have a lot of problems and we need to address them. The role of money in politics is a big concern. The structure of our government is a big concern. Uh, the Republican Party's aversion to science and increasing aversion to democracy is a big concern. We have big problems. And I think, you know, we're at something of a fork in the road. Uh, I think we retain the possibility of doubling down on the democratic project and trying to make a better society for all. And I think there's a very real possibility and a very scary possibility that we continue to move in a different direction instead, direction you know, where there's this illusion that by embracing ethnic nationalism, we can protect what we have. And I shouldn't say we, I don't know that I'm eligible to be part of that ethnic nationalist community, but that those who are that, that this ethnic nationalist community can protect itself and preserve its life, it would be a really terrible mistake, and I hope we can avoid it. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts leading into November? What should people keep in their minds when they go to the polls? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a big election um, because the questions that we are confronting as a society are really on the table. I think that, that both parties agree that we have a problem uh, I think we have tried one set of solutions and found them wanting. Uh, we obviously don't know who the Democratic candidate will be yet. Um, but, you know, this isn't, uh, it's not too late for us to address our problems. 
but we need to renew a sense of common purpose and of agency. You know, the way that I close my book is by observing, I believe in the market economy. I think it's wonderful. I think what we need to do is repair and improve the market economy. Markets are human creations. We get to write the rules. We have the power to write better rules. We need to do it. Binya, thank you so much for the great conversation. My pleasure. Benjamin Applebaum is the lead writer on business and economics for the New York Times editorial board. He's the author of The Economist's Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.